Hello and welcome to Casualties of History, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. I'm Gabe Winant, here with my co-host Alex Press, and today we are discussing chapters three and four of The Making of the English Working Class. As always, you can join us on Slack uh, to discuss the book by going to patreon.com slash casualties of history. You can listen to the podcast at blueberry, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com slash Jacobin. And we have a guest today with us, John Bostet, Professor of History Emeritus at University of Tennessee. Welcome, John. Hey, thanks for having me. John Bostet has taught history at the University of Tennessee uh, since 1970. What year did you say, John? 1979. 1979. And he is the author of a couple of books. Um, maybe you could just say for us the names of a couple of your books. Riots and Community Politics in England and Wales, 1790 to 1810. And then the other, my other book is The Politics of Provisions. Great. And so chapter three is a lot on riots. So we thought you'd be the perfect guest. Thanks. Um, of course. Why don't we start with a question about right towards the beginning of the chapter. He talks about how the 18th century was sort of the age of riots. Um, and he actually says, comparing it to written law versus sort of common notions of what's law. He says on page 60, the distinction between the legal code and the unwritten popular code is a commonplace at any time, but rarely have the two codes been more sharply distinguished from each other than in the second half of the 18th century. So why was this the age of riots? Why was this distinction so sharp at the time? Well, because riots occurred where there was that ambiguity. So when we look at a riot, we're looking at an ambiguous situation in which people can appeal to different codes. And that gives the rioters are formally stepping over the line into illegality to get their rulers' attentions. But they're also appealing to some codes, some of them commonly held, to you know avert the danger of just you're breaking the law, we have to hang you. So, so riots tend to take place where there is that ambiguity. Uh, Thompson talks in the chapter about the logic of the riot, that the riot is not a kind of, you know, spontaneous eruption of madness or, you know, crowd mania, but has a kind of order to it. Can you tell us what he means by this? Yeah, that's a crucial piece of the making of the working class is that Thompson is showing the common people, the working class, making themselves. They're not simply the puppets of economic determinism. Food riots are, are, are the common people bargaining with their rulers. They bargain with them by stepping over the line. That forces the rulers to take some action. It's not like a demonstration where people can just ignore it. The rulers have to take some action. In the case of food riots, they can either shoot, shoot the common people or feed them. It's a lot more effective for their authority to feed them because that preserves and strengthens their authority. Riots take place where the threats are external, threats to the community, where they are, uh, where they can be solved. They're concrete threats that can be solved by a riot, and they have this ambiguity of the different codes that rioters can appeal to. Could you give us a little more of the context? Why, why is it that in the late 18th century in particular, food riots become so much more frequent and apparently more intense? Yeah, I would say because uh, industrialization has gone far enough to create big classes of the common people who are dependent on on the markets for food. They don't. They no longer grow their own food. They're dependent. And I'm talking about rural industrialization of both weavers and miners. Those are two big kind. Those are two rioting communities: weavers and miners. Uh, but also, of course, small cities where cloth industry is taking place. And, but also, Thompson spends a lot of time with artisans. So all of those things, all of those things of the common people dependent on markets are growing. 
they're not yet reached the point of the industrialization by say 1840 to 50, where people are separated from the local networks that enable them to act collectively and they're now becoming more masses of people and they're forming more organizations rather than relying on community politics. And community politics rest on this idea of a moral economy. You- yes and no. The, my argument against the moral economy is the moral, neither the moral economy nor hardship explain why riots occur in some places and not in others. Yes, Thompson's key point, rioters are not simply driven by impersonal forces. That's crucial. They're making their own history. But why some communities, not others? What I say is that this community politics of rioting is shaped by the interaction of these two kinds of local networks that people have lived into for perhaps decades or generations. One, the horizontal networks among the common people, which might be labor groups, it might be church groups, it might be kinship, communities, celebrations, and so on. All these things that give people shared expectations of each other. They know what to expect. And then the interaction of those relationships that enable them to act collectively with the vertical relationships with their authorities, their local authorities, who have a lot of ties with them also, uh, patronage, uh, both political patronage, economic patronage, employment, marketing, buying stuff, seeing them at fairs, counting on them, for, so that the interaction of those two networks allows people to speak the same language, meaning have expectations that they can rely on and know what to expect. So food riots, in my view, take place within the pragmatic politics of these of these networks and i emphasize pragmatic because i think thompson overgeneralizes on the moral aspects and i emphasize the pragmatic which is problems that are solvable by riot so it's not simply as thompson put it it's not simply a clash between the old traditional uh, regulated economy and the new capitalist economy um, it's, it's also what is possible within, uh, within the evolving history. Yeah, and to your point, he says on page 67, hence the final years of the 18th century saw a last desperate effort by the people to reimpose the older moral economy as against the economy of the free market. So Thompson says it's a clash between these two ideological systems. And, and I'm saying no, uh, I don't think so. And Thompson, one of the key things is, Thompson is able to see that because he's quoting the, he's quoting authorities, the ruling class, their writers, their reporters, and so on. He doesn't quote rioters' speeches that much. And that's a crucial difference. And if you start looking at what the writers say, they're not talking about what you're talking about. They're talking about the simplest morality, which is, we demand that you not starve us. We, we must have food at a, at a price we can afford. We will not be starved to death. That's, that's the key moral thing, not reference to ancient traditions. So uh, one thing that Thompson emphasizes is that when rioters seize bread or seize flour, uh, often they'll sell it at what they see as the just price and then return uh, the revenue that they brought in to the person from whom they, or the, the merchant from whom they seized it. And do you see that as, a, as an aspect of the kind of pragmatic quality that you're talking about? Yes. The, part of the discipline of the crowds is to keep the other people from, from making them all vulnerable to hanging, from making them liable to hanging by going too far, by beating somebody up or smashing something. And also they have their own, they're drawn not simply from the lowest classes, but from the middle third of the community. So they have respect for property. They don't want to just steal things and put and hurt the farmer. And sometimes they actually, they actually demand and get a compromise price between the emergency price and the usual price. And, and very often the magistrates go along with that and, order the farmers to sell at that price. So I think uh, 
you have an interesting example of a riot, kind of a particular one that we had discussed. Are you able to just walk us through that? Yeah. Okay, here's a letter from a magistrate in Devon in 1795 uh, to the the, one of the county leaders, one of the main leaders of the county. And I'll just read a bit of it, if that's all right. That's great. Fearing that you may see, he's, here's the, the local report, the local magistrate writing to the county authority. Fearing you may see in the papers an exaggerated account of some disturbances which have prevailed in Exeter in the neighborhood for some days past, I beg leave to acquaint you with the real facts. Wednesday last, about 40 or 50 persons assembled in St. Thomas Parish and took possession of a quantity of wheat, potatoes, etc. The farmers asked nine shillings and sixpence a bushel for their wheat and ten pence a peck for their potatoes, but the crowd obliged them to sell for seven shillings, sixpence and the potatoes for eight pence. Yesterday, they assembled again to the number of between two and 300. They went in the morning to the potato market, seized all the potatoes and were selling them at six pence a pick till the mayor settled the price between buyer and seller at eight pence. In the afternoon, the magistrates again interfered in the corn market and settled the price at eight shillings. And then they went out and intercepted a wagon load of wheat on its way to the market and bought it and bought it for seven and eight, uh, seven shillings, eight pence a bushel. Give me leave, sir, before I conclude to say that in those assemblies of riotous persons, very few conducted themselves with any degree of violence. They behaved much better than was expected. They used no harsh language to the magistrates, only said that if they were to suffer, they might as well be hung as starved, and they would run the risk of making their situations better, for worse could not be. Scarcely a man appeared among them. The bumper sticker of the food rioters were, was, we'd rather be hanged than starved. So they were, step, they were taking a risk, but they were making it a manageable risk. Scarcely a man appeared among them, meaning a lot of food riot crowds were women, were dominated by women, not because women were housewives. Women managed the household economy. They weren't, they weren't some second-class citizen in working-class households, but they were often employed themselves. So they were the ones who, you know, who were most responsible for food and its price. I have a question about hanging, since it's come up so often. Is consciousness of the high rate and intensity and frequent, uh, frequency of criminal punishment pervasive through plebeian English society? Is there a sense that the hangman is kind of an ordinary feature of life? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so because they were very, very uh, public. Hangings were very public. There weren't that many hangings of food riders. They were quite rare. Normally because of the shared, the shared ideas and the shared relationships, the social relationships between riders and authorities and the, and the limits that the riders imposed on themselves. Yeah, this, I mean, Gabe, to your point, this really struck me at the start of the chapter he was discussing, Thompson discusses how many capital offenses were being added to the books. So between 1760 and 1810, no less than 63 more capital offenses were added and, he says, not only petty theft, but primitive forms of industrial rebellion, destroying a silk loom, throwing down fences when commons were enclosed, and firing corn ricks were to be punished by death. And he goes on to say that some juries were becoming reluctant to convict. And it's actually some, you know, for someone who's not so familiar with the period, um, Thompson's emphasis on what he says on the next page on 61, that the commercial expansion, the enclosure movement, the early years of the Industrial Revolution all took place within the shadow of the gallows is somewhat shocking as far as what people are responding to in the context in which they're acting. And there he's talking about the destruction of capital and the destruction of, of the machinery of society, right. the factories, the, the equipment and so on. Those are much more serious than, you know, taking food and so on. Mm -hmm. And he talks about that. He, he gives a lot of play in the book to the Luddites as industrial rebels. Mm -hmm. And that's a, and that is emerging into a form of class conflict. Right. 
Thompson also draws a distinction between uh, food riots and the kinds we've been talking about on one hand and uh, the so-called licensed riot on the other, which he associates with John Wilkes. Can you can you talk a little bit more about this? I think that's what he calls the mob, isn't it? That's where even high high ranking citizens would promote a mob, and we're seeing this today in our own country. But but uh, where high, where they promote crowd action in order to achieve some goal of theirs, and it's typically more conservative. It's typically because they're trying to they're trying to preserve their authority by attacking, by having a mob attack uh, an agitator or a rebel. And do you think that that nonetheless um, helped increase the overall degree of popular politics and sort of democratic impulse in in English politics? Or do you think it, it, not very much? Not very much. Not very much. Because that was very common in English politics already. Uh, the, The elections you know, hundreds of members of parliament, maybe a third to a half, maybe a third of them were elected in public open elections. The rest of them were more or less fixed elections, but in public open elections, they were big crowd affairs. And so there was a lot of patronage, there was feasting, uh, probably bribes and, and demonstrations fomented by the competing patrons of the candidates. So. That was so near riots was a part of the political process. As we talk about this, and we sort of alluded to this already, um, I know that something important in your own career was the overall turn to history from below. And it struck me in thinking about this, uh, that in the 60s and 70s, historians and historical sociologists began to study crowds and riots in this new way we've been talking about. And I've always assumed this was in reaction to the way that Cold War liberalism often saw mass politics and popular politics as sort of irrational and related to totalitarianism. Does that seem right to you? Or do you think there was another another context that led to yes. this interest? The whole point is that the, that the given view was oversimplistic and it was deterministic. It cast the, it cast the common people as puppets. And the whole thing of the title, the making of the working class, they were making themselves. And so, um, and that's what Thompson goes to great lengths. He recovers all this stuff, uh, religion, labor groups, communities, riots, lots of different sources of community action and identity and shared experience that emerged. And then people could build on that and, and go different places with it. In my in my reaction to some of this to some of these other generalized uh, discussions, both Thompson and liberal materialist economists, I want to look at different kinds of communities that foster different kinds of riots. So that's been the burden of my work. Different kinds of communities, community politics, therefore, had different. Different, different shapes and textures. What led you to personally decide to study riots? I came to Harvard in 1966. I came to Harvard to work with a famous uh, economic historian known around the world for his studies of industrialization in England. And he was, he was a neoliberal. He had the first semester I was there, he had a research seminar on, and he decided to base it on, on riots which was quite amazing. We met, in his, we met in his living room and he gave us the making of the working class to read. That was the first thing we read. And then we read the moral economy of the crowd in its draft form. And then we read Obsbaum and Rude and Tilly and other people. Um, and, it, and when I came to present the rough draft of my paper, um, the, the guy ahead of me had gone on way too long. So it was about 11 o'clock when I started I presented my paper sort of supporting Thompson's ideas in the moral economy. And, and we argued, I argued with this professor of mine for two hours until after midnight. Wow. And, and he, he later said that was one of the best arguments he's ever had. And then, and then two years later, I got to know Thompson. I ran into him at the, pub, at the National Archives we went out for coffee. He invited me to join his seminar. A seminar was a workshop, a floating workshop with not only students, but a lot of other people. 
Um, I loved riots because they were episodes of the common people acting. And I've long been a political activist. I think I became one after my graduate career since I didn't have the time, but I've long been a political activist. And that, and I say in my writings, that contributes to my analysis of riots. What makes people act collectively and gives them the courage and so on. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience with Thompson and history from below as a sort of framework? <clears throat> yeah, I participated in his seminar. He was a prophetic presence. He had a kind of a gaunt, stretched face, but very, very handsome and, and very, very passionate. But it was a passion and a presence which was accessible and engaging. So he cared about, he cared about me from the beginning. And he invited me to join his seminar. And, and then when I joined his seminar, the students in his group, they later put together a book called Albion's Fatal Tree. But these students, this was not a cult of personality at all. He, he encouraged people to think independently. And he argued with them. And they loved to argue. And then he'd have everybody over to his house for a potluck afterwards. And later on, 20 years later, we had a, there was a celebration or at... Uh, at his a seminar at his university, University of Warwick. And um, it, was, it was called The Moral Economy 20 Years On. And I gave my paper, which was a, a deep critique of the moral economy. It was published in the Journal of Social History later that year. And I gave that paper and Thompson's fans and students were saying, oh, you don't really understand. Oh, you've got it wrong here. I don't know. And Thompson stood up and he said, I think John Bosted understands my work as well as anyone. So he always treated me with both respect and we enjoyed arguing and then giving, giving each other like one of his own students and, and liking. So he was, he was a great man. John, thank you so much for all of your time and for speaking to us. I think we've covered just about everything we could cover about this chapter and the broader context of riots in the era. Thanks very much for having me. I look forward to hearing it. Can I listen to more of your discussion? Yeah, sure. Right. So chapter three was Satan's stronghold. Chapter four is the freeborn Englishman, and it covers um, the popular sense of the constitution and the civil liberties of English people. Um, what was the freeborn Englishman, Alex? It's a great question, Gabe. <laughs> We, this is something we talked about last week with Rachel Foxley a little bit. You, you are not wrong. I mean, we talked about it in the context of a kind of mythology of England as this eternally free, you know, eternally liberal society that had not had to undergo the kinds of uh, traumas and struggles that other societies had. And, you know, uh, Professor Foxley last week was kind of at pains to deflate that mythology so, mm -hmm. um, but here I think what's interesting about this chapter is how it's about uh, the ways that that mythology was more than just mythology, how it held meaning for common people and how they were able to make it meaningful. Sure. So on page 78, why don't we just launch into chapter four? So um, here where we talk, he starts talking about how people regarded themselves as freeborn Englishmen. He's, Thompson writes, patriotism, nationalism, even bigotry and repression were all clothed in the rhetoric of, rhetoric of liberty. Even old corruption extolled British liberties, not at national honor or power, but freedom was the coinage of patrician, demagogue and radical alike. And he starts talking about that sort of two main characters of this chapter, Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine, both of them championing or condemning the French Revolution. Right. Um, in the language of patriotism and liberty and being freeborn Englishmen and the sort of rights that come with that. What were those rights that sort of animated people um, under this logic of the freeborn Englishmen? Yeah, he goes through them on this, on, on page 79 in a helpful way, I think, uh, you know, first of all, and I think he, this is a sort of honest uh, acknowledgement that the foremost of the common Englishman's birthright consists in security of property as Mary Wollstonecraft puts it, uh, behold the definition of English liberty. And then Thompson goes on, yet the rhetoric of liberty meant much more. First of all, of course, freedom from foreign domination. And within this enveloping haze of patriotic self-congratulation, there were other less distinct notions, 
which old corruption, which is sort of his term or the term for the kind of oligarchic regime, which old corruption felt bound to flatter and which uh, and yet which were to prove dangerous to it in the long run. So here again, we have Thompson working with one of his kind of dialectical paradoxes. Um, freedom from absolutism, the constitutional monarchy, freedom from arbitrary arrest, trial by jury, equality before the law, the freedom of the home from arbitrary entrance and search, some limited liberty of thought, of speech, and of conscience, the vicarious participation in liberty or in its semblance afforded by the right of parliamentary opposition and by elections and election tumults. Nor were any of these freedoms insignificant. Taken together, they both embody and reflect a moral consensus in which authority at times shared and which at all times it was bound to take account. It's an interesting thing about his discussion of law, and he goes on famously to kind of continue this discussion in his book, Wigs and Hunters, which develops a lot of these themes further. But the idea that law, which Marxists often, I think, tend to understand as basically part of the weapons and armor of the ruling class, uh, actually contains also within it the tacit concessions that the elite have made to the common people, and that law itself reflects a balance of forces in ways similar to other uh, areas of social struggle. I think we see that really clearly in this discussion in chapter four of civil liberties and, con and constitutionalism. The idea that the legacy of the 17th century and of the Civil War and the Commonwealth and then the, uh, the 1688 revolution, although in the moment it was experienced as compromise, if not outright defeat by many of the revolutionaries of that period, leaves a legacy for people that they uh, then can draw on and mobilize and think of as their own, and that the state and the elites who operate the state have to steer clear of, that they can't just outright violate. You're exactly right that the laws contain at least a recognition of the common people. And various authorities said, when we concede to the crowd, we are helping ourselves as much as the crowd, because by feeding them, they will not rise up and overthrow us. And you can find that said over and over again. It's very, it's ironic, but true. Right. There's a real fear of the common people that um, it's, I mean, it's hard for me to not become uh, romantic or sentimental about in reading this. It feels so absent in our common, in our present world, the fear of the common people that actually is fundamental to democratic rights and kind of uh, the ability of working class people to make themselves heard and, and, uh, make their power felt, right? There, there has to be fear, actually, in that. There's one element that we need to remember. The common people, if they wanted to, could always uh, make their point by arson. And, you know, it's totally anonymous and secret. And so, you know, you, you might pay for offending the common people. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So chapter four, he talks a lot, Gabe, to your point about how sort of the creation of what he calls the humanitarian impulse or something is warped by and sort of created by this fear among the Victorian middle classes of as the French Revolution is sort of taking off of the idea that there might be a similar response among the already very unruly people of England. Um, and he talks about two um, in this chapter, two different sort of reformers of the middle class who I think in a way that reminds me of his discussion of Methodism were writing for the poor rather than of the poor. Um, and they're Hannah Moore and um, the other one being, I guess, William Wilberforce. He calls these two the foster parents of the sensibility of the Victorian middle classes. And so they're writing at the time to sort of, I think, maybe he quotes Burke where he says people wanted to get their houses in order by which he meant get the poor to be as submissive as possible. And so they're writing these pamphlets at the time that were sort of advocating certain submissiveness, certain respect for the law and the Constitution um, that I find really interesting as, you know, he contrasts it with Tom Paine, which I guess we'll get to um, Tom Paine's role in all of this. But there is this underlying fear of both the international context and the decades of rioting that have been going on. Yeah, and at the same time, that there's this underlying fear, which is an expression of social and class conflict, and it's playing out on the grounds of respect for the kind of ancient traditions and constitution, which both sides try to lay claim to and uh, make their own. And so at some, I mean, 
I think it's a very good example of, um, you know, Thompson, I think, is influenced in important ways that he doesn't make explicit here by Gramsci. And I think it's a very good example of a kind of Gramscian way of thinking about social conflict, how there is a kind of hegemonic common sense, which does impose constraints on the ability of the subordinated people to shape society overall. Uh, right? It's not simply that the Constitution is uh, all, it only provides power to the lower orders, and we're going to talk more about that by the end of the chapter. But at the same time, the very mechanism by which the Constitution allows the ruling class to rule also simultaneously constrains the ruling class. And the two classes, if we can call them that at this point, meet on the ground of the Constitution. And kind of that is how they, how they achieve this negotiation through things like how far will the riot go and who will, it, who will be punished for it? Um, how radical will an organization like the London Corresponding Society make its demands for suffrage? And again, will they be prosecuted for treason? Will the prosecution go through or will the jury, right? And the jury being an example of civil liberty, will the jury let them go? Um, so it's, I think, a very helpful way of thinking about uh, the kind of Gramscian categories of, of hegemony and common sense. And also right. I would add that that hegemony is better preserved in cohesive communities, but industrialization and urbanization and population growth, which are in the background of making of the working class, are making English society less and less these communities of people who know each other and interact with each other and more and more big impersonal cities where classes are more natural. I think it's worth talking just a little bit more about some of the kind of content of the idea of the freeborn Englishman. One thing that was really striking to me was um, the hostility to military mobilization that was a component of this, which makes sense given how Britain in the 18th and early 19th century was just constantly at war. Uh, I mean, it was more or less always at war. And uh, that obviously would have effects in the everyday life of common people. But I hadn't thought it through that well until reading this. Yeah, there's a great quote on page 81 about the profession of the soldier and how dishonorable it was. Um, so one pamphleteer writes, in arbitrary monarchies where the despot who reigns says to his wretched subjects, eat straw and they eat straw. No wonder that they can raise armies of human butchers to destroy their fellow creatures. But in a country like Great Britain, which at least is pretended to be free, it becomes a matter of no small surprise that so many thousands of men should deliberately renounce the privileges and blessings attendant on freemen and voluntarily sell themselves to the most humiliating and degrading slavery for the miserable pittance of sixpence a day. It's and just... remember that English society was much more decentralized than French, than French society, so was much more ruled by the local rulers with their own systems of patronage, both by counties, which are British equivalent of states, and in the towns. And so uh, one of the prints I gave you, Gabe, was resisting a press gang. And that was maybe the second leading cause of riots, the occasion of riots. Can you tell us how a press gang worked? Well, they would get a warrant or some kind of official document and just go out and say, we need, we're going to take 12 men from this village and take them into the army. And that was it. It was, it was basically legalized kidnapping. And, and so the whole, the town, as you can see in the, you can see in the print I gave you, People are kind of amused and they're good. They're good natured, but they ain't going to let that press gang take that man. <laughs> we'll be sharing that print on, on, uh, online. Yeah. When we publish this, this episode, uh, another very striking thing in this part of the discussion in the chapter is, uh, resistance to policing as a kind of form of, uh, intolerable standing military occupation. Uh, Thompson says, uh, at the bottom of 81, um, if ever that bulwark is broke down of every Englishman's house being his castle, this is he's quoting a source at the time, uh, then that strong, bar strong barrier is forever broke that so many of our ancestors have bled for and in vain. Resistance to an effective police force continued well into the 19th century, while reformers were prepared to agree that a more effective preventive police was necessary, with more watchmen and a stronger nightly guard over property. Any centralized force with larger powers was seen as, quote, a system of tyranny, an organized army of spies and informers for the destruction of all public liberty and the disturbance of all private happiness. Every other system of police is the curse of despotism. 
It's interesting in the society, again, that has this kind of reputation as the, the cradle of, of, you know, Western liberty, to have this very potent anti-police uh, ideology. Yeah, it's an amazing thing that the quote that follows what you just read, where he says, um, where the Parliamentary Committee of 1818 saw in Bentham's proposal for the Ministry of Police, quote, a plan which would make every servant of every house a spy on the actions of his master and all classes of society spies on each other. I mean, it's remarkable, given the con- that you and I are in the context of the United States, to sort of see this rhetoric coming out of even the parliamentary committee uh, when it comes to the creation of this police force. So, you know, I think one very striking thing that Thompson gets into, and that might be a little more obscure to some of our readers, is the, the sense of the origins of a lot of this ideology, at least as it's held by many of its own participants. And this is the idea that the freedoms of the freeborn Englishmen are ancient, that they go back to Saxon freedoms. Um, and there's a whole discussion of, you know, King Al- great King Alfred and the Wittengamot and all these sorts of uh, early medieval, basically mythologies, um, in which English freedom is held to lie and or from which it's said to have originated. And uh, the whole history of more recent events, such as what we talked about last week, is seen as kind of the recovery of that ancient history. So, for example, he quotes uh, the reformer John Baxter, who was a silversmith and a leader of the London Corresponding Society, on page 86. Originally, Baxter supposed, the Constitution must have been free. History was a history of its corruption, the Britons having been subdued first by the Romans, next by the Saxons, these again by the Danes, and finally all by the Normans. As for the revolution of 1688, it did no more than expel a tyrant and confirm the Saxon laws. But there were plenty of these laws still to be restored. And next to manhood suffrage, the ones which Baxter liked best were the absence of a standing army and the right of each citizen to go armed. He had arrived, by industrious constitutional arguments, at the right of the people to defy the Constitution. So in other words, it's a kind of constitution in exile. That's where a lot of these assertions of rights come from. And there's an idea uh, that Thompson refers to here, quoting Christopher Hill, who was one of his uh, comrades in the Communist Party Historians Group, of the theory of the Norman yoke, which we see at multiple points in this chapter. That's that uh, when William the Conqueror took the throne of England in 1066, uh, you know, as a, a French a French aristocrat with a kind of French army, um, right, that Normandy being in France, uh, he imposed a kind of foreign, and it's not a coincidence that it's French, probably, a foreign um, despotism on the native liberty of the, of the English people. And this is not true in any uh, literal sense, right? There's no real way in which, uh, from my understanding, you know, Saxon England was actually uh, the cradle of civil liberty. But it, it's a kind of invented tradition that becomes key to the sense that common people have that their freedoms inhere in them sort of organically. I mean, it's interesting this, Gabe, to your point, it's another example of sort of Thompson's method here. On page 88, he says, for a plebeian movement to arise, it was essential to escape from these categories altogether, um, the constitutional arguments, um, and set forward far wider democratic claims. In the years between 770 1770 and 1790, we can observe a dialectical paradox by means of which the rhetoric of constitutionalism contributed to its own destruction or transcendence. Um, I just think it's a great quote about this sort of grappling with these invented traditions and the categories and actually where the logic of these categories leads the people. Right. And Thompson is not saying, um, thank God they got over this delusion. Right. Right. Um, he does sort of think it's delusional, ultimately, or that it's illusory, maybe is a better way of putting it. Yeah. Um, but he also thinks it's playing this key mediating role, right, in bringing the kind of politics, the popular politics of the 18th century, which are rooted ultimately in the revolution of the 17th century, bringing them into a kind of more modern moment. Um, so people have to actually have this account of how their rights are being violated that comes from the past, but they also can't stay there or they won't be able to actually challenge the modern regime. That seems to be what he's saying. And he puts huge emphasis then 
on Payne, Tom Payne, as the person who breaks out of this. Right. So to get there, I mean, right after what fo- what I read, he says, the first reaction was to criticize the practice of the 18th century in the light of its own theory. The second, more delayed reaction was to bring the theory itself into, into discredit. So this is this process of using the actual inherited categories and rhetoric to act to sort of destru- start destroying the logic itself and he says at this point that pain entered with rights of man so pain enters sort of at the point when this logic is starting to crumble within itself and we want to see how much pain relies on, on tradition for his arguments i don't know i can't say but the anglo-saxon norman contrast is the english tradition is one of evolving law based on experience and precedent not not set down and not all of a sudden invented at a specific moment and decreed like like the myth had normans doing but evolving and precedent riots and riots were a crucial part of the constitution in that you know britain goes by an unwritten constitution right even down to today yeah it's interesting though i think that um Well, first, Thompson draws this contrast. The whole second half of the chapter, really, Thompson is uh, sort of deploying Burke and Payne as uh, these two antagonists who define the poles of politics in the moment of the French Revolution and the instability that that it um, causes. But uh, so first he says about this, um, in the 1790s, the ambiguities of John Locke seem to fall into two halves, one Burke, the other Payne. Where Burke assumes government and examines its operation in light of experience and tradition, Payne speaks for the governed and assumes that the authority of government derives from conquest and inherited power in a class-divided society. So it's very interesting, you know, I think that we've gone here from uh, this idea that the particular conqueror of England, that being the Norman, uh, has imposed an illegitimate sort of invaders regime on a pre-existing legitimate uh, monarchical regime. And Paine actually works within this in a certain way by saying, actually all monarchs are, are all monarchs are like William the Conqueror. On 91, he's describing the hereditary principle of rule in general and says this, a banditti of ruffians overrun a country not our country, right, but a country, describing it in general, and lay it under contributions. Their power being thus established, the chief of the band contrived to lose the name of robber in that of monarch, and hence the origin of monarchy and kings. And as for the right of inheritance, to inherit a government, Payne writes, is to inherit the people, as if they were flocks and herds. Kings succeed each other, not as rationals, but as animals. It requires some talents to be a common mechanic, but to be a king requires only the animal figure of a man, a sort of breathing auto- automaton. It's such a great quote. It requires some talent <laughs> to be a common mechanic. Finally, we're, so, we're sort of seeing legible, um, in pain, legible class rhetoric um, that I found really quite moving, having not actually read that much Thomas Paine. Um, and it's interesting how, to use uh, the wrong word, the pains by which reformers at the time are sort of distancing themselves from Tom Paine's rhetoric um, because it, it's gone too far into sort of destroying um, the ideas of, of tradition that um, so many of them are sort of using to leverage their own demands. Right. I, Burke, very famously, and in line with uh, what John was just saying, sees government as a compact between past, present, and future. Uh, whereas Paine writes, I am contending for the rights of the living and against their being willed away and controlled and contracted for by the manuscript-assumed authority of the dead. Government by precedent, without regard for the principle of the precedent, is one of the vilest systems that can be set up. So here is a kind of radicalism that we had not seen yet up to this point. So I think for people who might not know so much about Burke, we should also talk a little bit about Burke. So who was Edmund Burke? Edmund Burke uh, is a very famous... I mean, down to this day, uh, mm-hmm. political theorist and politician, um, he is often described and seen as the intellectual founding father of modern conservatism and uh, is a figure who tries to kind of 
justify and explain conservative government in terms of um, the kind of natural associations, the so-called small battalions um, of society, and those being the sort of fundamental site of social capacity and social knowledge, and large change endangering uh, the forms of inherited tradition to hold society together. Um, he's famous for writing a few different pieces of, a few different things, but probably most importantly for our context, Reflections on the Revolution in France, uh, where he, you know, he denounces the revolution in France and tries to understand its significance. And Paine uh, is directly responding to Burke, actually, and directly criticizing Burke. In, in Right. Rights of Man is a response to the reflections on the revolution in France. Exactly. Right. And I think it's worth noting, because Thompson makes a big deal of it in this chapter, that this, there's a phrase that Burke uses that enrages the people of England. The, he refers to them as the swinish multitude. And there's just this incredible list of demonstrations and rallies that happen where people are sort of making fun of this phrase and writing pamphlets saying that it's, you know, the swinish multitude addressing Burke. Um, and he, so it sort of turns on these two different phrases, the two word epithet from Burke, swinish multitude versus Paine's rights of man um, as sort of two different senses of what the, the common people's value is. And that's the spectrum at this moment. Yes. With, this is page 90. With dreary invention, the popular pamphleteers performed satirical variations upon Burke's theme. Hogswash, pig's meat, mast and acorns collected by old Hubert. Politics for the People, a Salmagundi for Swine, with contributions from Brother Grunter, Porculus, and Ad Nauseam, were the titles of the pamphlets and periodicals. The Sty, the Swineherds, the Bacon, so it goes on. Quote, Whilst ye are gorging yourselves at troughs filled with the daintiest wash, we, with our numerous train of porkers, are employed from the rising to the setting sun to obtain the means of subsistence by picking up a few acorns, runs an address to the Honorable Edmund Burke from the Swinish Multitude, 1793. No other words have ever made the freeborn Englishman so angry nor so ponderous in reply. I mean, this is what was fascinating about Burke's writing is he often was sort of putting his foot in his mouth as far as I mean, he sort of famously um, uses the wrong words, I think, a lot of the time um, in reflections on the revolution in France. Um, so I didn't know this history of this phrase. So I thought that was like completely fascinating. Um, as far as the people rising up against the father of conservatism. I also think it's interesting how you can see in this dialogue, uh, and this is something that Thompson also is at pains to uh, argue, the emergence of an analysis of class division from within uh, the kind of framework of constitutional arguments. Um, for example, uh, I started to read a, a quotation before about how Paine and Burke are both inheritors of Locke, uh, which goes on, this is from Thompson, the classes are roughly defined, he's quoting Paine now, there are two distinct classes of men in the nation, those who pay taxes and those who receive and live upon taxes. And as for the Constitution, it is a good one for courtiers, placement, pensioners, borough holders, and the leaders of the parties, but it is a bad Constitution for at least 99 parts of the nation out of 100. It's the rhetoric of the 99%, Gabe. <laughs> Exactly. Right. And, and similar to that. Right. It's not it's not the kind of precise class analysis that we associate with Marxism. Uh, it's a kind of broader plebeian or popular type class analysis. But it's also an increasingly clear version of something we can recognize as basically continuous with our time. Right. I mean, it reminds me so much. So page 93, the next page that you were reading, he quotes again from the second part of Rights of Man. And he and what. Payne says is, why does Mr. Burke talk of this house of peers as the pillar of the landed interest? Were that pillar to sink into the earth, the same landed property would continue, and the same plowing, sowing, and reaping would go on. The aristocracy are not the farmers who work the land, but the mere consumers of the rent. And it's just remarkably, you know, it reminds me of so much of present conversations about, you know, you know, I think about who is seen as a productive member of society and these things and capital sort of survives off the rent of the workers. Um, it's all of a sudden starting to sound very familiar as a conversation. 
Yeah, I mean, Marx says at one point that the ruling class is divided into landed interest, which lives off rent, industrial interest, which lives off profit, and moneyed interest, which lives off uh, interest uh, or usury, right? Um, and here we see a, a little glimmering of that. The making of the working class, uh, again, it's partly a critique of Marxist, of a simple, simplistic Marxism. The working class is not simply you know, people with certain economic interests who are, who, who become the working class determined by this class structure and the economic structure and so on. No, they are people with ideas, traditions, and histories of action and consciousness. That right. And, and pain is framing that really centrally, yes. right? Yes. As the, as an increasingly kind of class uh, conceived notion of society is emerging. It's emerging in these kinds of, uh, the kind of constitutional uh, partly anti-constitutional, but still kind of libertarian rhetoric of pain. Sure. So on page 94, he addresses this exactly, and he says of pain, what he gave to English people was a new rhetoric of radical egalitarianism, which touched the deepest responses of the, quote, freeborn Englishman, and which penetrated the sub-political attitudes of the urban working people. And in chapter three, he goes into talking about what the sub-political sort of consists of, um, and he's, again, trying to rescue what is seen as not political, you know, from, quote, state and strongholds, um, the, the politics of the riots. Um, and so it's really interesting that Payne can actually speak this language. So it's not to say that these ideas need to come from without and are foreign um, in the way the simplistic sort of maybe Marxist way that you're referring to, John. Um, but actually, this is why Payne is such a valuable figure in this moment and why people react so strongly both in favor of him and against him at the time. And it's amazing to see uh, on page 93, Payne basically calling for a kind of welfare state. Um, I'm going to read here this, this section from Thompson. Uh, first writing as himself, and then he goes on to quote, this led him on to far-reaching impressionistic proposals for cutting the costs of government, army, and navy, remitting taxes and poor rates, raising additional taxation by means of a graduated income tax and paying out the monies raised or saved in sums to alleviate the position of the poor. He proposed family allowances, public funds to enable general education for all children, old age pensions, quote, not as a matter of grace and favor, but of right, for the recipients would receive back only a portion of what they had con contributed in taxation, a maternity benefit, a benefit for newly wedded couples, a benefit for funerals for the necessitous, and the building in London of combined lodging houses and workshops to assist immigrants and the unemployed. And then he goes on to say, quoting Payne, by the operation of this plan, the poor laws, those instruments of civil torture will be superseded. The dying poor will not be dragged from place to place to breathe their last as a reprisal of parish upon parish. Widows will have a maintenance for their children and children will no longer be considered as increasing the distresses of their parents. The number of petty crimes, the offspring of distress and poverty will be lessened. The poor, as well as the rich, will then be interested in the support of government, and the cause and apprehensions of riots and tumults will cease. Ye who sit in ease and solace yourselves in plenty, have ye thought of these things? It's remarkably modern. I mean, he sa Thompson says this is pain setting the course for ultimately what will be the struggle towards social legislation for the next hundred or so years. Um, it sounds remarkably familiar, these demands. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth talking here about. I, I couldn't help in uh, reading this and thinking about it. Here, this was a moment of the book that really seemed to thrust itself into kind of our time more than other parts have, at least for me. Um, I mean, that moment that you, you flagged a second ago about the 99% was one, one thing like this. But, you know, the combination of um, the sort of formally liberal government, right, with the kind of... Uh, sanctified constitution, but nonetheless, actually, the people cannot fully use uh, to exert themselves, right? It remains a kind of oligarchical re regime clad in the clothing of liberalism, uh, such that the uh, popular politics have to kind of go through a cycle of increasingly breaking with, or at least this is what Thompson is saying, increasingly breaking with kind of veneration of the constitution in order to uh, move toward a more toward demands that actually uh, address their material condition, um, 
it was very difficult, I think, not to recognize in that something about our own moment and how um, completely dysfunctional, obviously, our democratic machine, supposedly democratic machinery is, right? And how it, it operates to frustrate anything recognizable as a kind of popular will and how associated that is with the kind of 99 and 1 polarization. And not to, on, on top of that, how much policing and punishment are obviously part of that, uh, you know, non-democratic quality of the regime in the same way that Payne is saying here. Um, there's, a, there's another feature that's, again, related to food rights. Sometimes, quite often, actually, food riots produced a local subscription among the wealthy, meaning they contributed to a pot to buy food and relieve the poor, again, as part of a bigger solution than just on the day. Um, later on, you, you mentioned the local food, the, mo the local poor law, which was local taxation and often very tight-fisted, that did develop into the new poor law of 1834, but that was um, partly resisted because it was draconian disciplinarian, but it was also a forerunner of the welfare state. And that and the debates about should the poor have to work to show that they're worthy of poor relief was definitely debated in those times too. Yeah, and obviously are still with us now. Alex, what were other resonances with the present that you you experienced in reading this? Well, I found interesting. So when Thompson is laying out the limitations of pain, which he actually goes to great lengths to sort of point to the restrictions that Payne's framework is going to start imposing on the radical movement for the next hundred years. He says on page 96, in terms of political democracy, he wished to level all inherited distinctions and privileges, but he gave no countenance to economic leveling. In political society, every man must have equal rights as a citizen. In economic society, he must naturally remain employer or employed, and the state should not interfere with the capital of the one or the wages of the other. The rights of man and the wealth of nation should supplement and nourish each other. Um, so I found this obviously very resonant with the president as far as when we're talking, I mean, not to, to say something very obvious, but the political revolution of Sanders and the sense of political and economic rights and debates over what's valid as far as demands to be raised. Um, I think this has been something that that Thompson throughout sort of I, I find his method really helpful in sort of talking about how the political and economic are interlinked um, and how Payne sometimes can manage to make these reforms um, can voice them from the reality of economic hardship um, that people are experiencing and articulate it politically. But this distinction, nonetheless, I think continues to be a huge one about political rights versus economic rights. I mean, at Jackman, we're constantly running things about democracy and what it means to have economic democracy versus political democracy. Um, so I found that useful and certainly resonant um, to, to current debates. Yeah. It is interesting that like Payne, for all his radicalism, as he's presented in this chapter, I mean, that last sentence of what I read, that the wealth of nations, Adam Smith's book, is meant to nourish and, and complement um, the rights of man. Again, it sort of is a helpful limitation, like, focus on the limitations of Payne's work. What is what is he demanding and what is he not demanding? I mean, we've pretty much reached the end of the chapter. I think, again, I mean, it's just incredible, this language that's, that's coming up. So on page... So now he starts talking about this other book, Volney's Ruins of Empire, um, which I have, of course, not read. Um, but he's talking about different tracts that sort of go beyond pain or at least resonate to some degree with pain. And one being William Godwin's book, but that doesn't have the reach um, that, say, Volney's does. And so Volney's book, um, Ruins of Empire, has this dialogue between the people and the privileged class. And I just think it's an incredible dialogue. So I wanted to read it um, before we wrapped up. So on page 99, he says, a dialogue takes place between the two groups. The people say... What labor do you perform in the society? The privileged class says, none. We are not made to labor. The people say, how then have you acquired your wealth? Privileged class, by taking the pains to govern you. People, to govern us, we toil and you enjoy. We produce and you dissipate. Wealth flows from us and you absorb it. Privileged men, 
class distinct from the people, form a nation apart, and govern yourselves. Um, it's just a remarkable dialogue, given that it's being written in the time it's being written in. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the disintegration of, you know, I mean, the meaning of the French Revolution, we've kind of been talking around the edges of in various ways, but... but uh, just the disintegration of an actual, you know, old regime and the appearance of the possibility of like making the world over again to this degree. Um, it just, the, the horizons that it opens up are enormous, obviously. Um, uh, on page 100, there's a, there's a, uh, Thompson quotes from, what is this? Um, well, Thompson writes, there was certainly a starstruck messianic mood among some of the disciples of Godwin and of Payne, which prepared, for, uh, prepared them for the acceptance of facile and ultimately disenchanting notions of human perfectibility. This is from uh, something called Citizen Randall of Ostend. Quote, O Payne, next to God, how infinitely are millions beholden to you for the small remnant of their liberties. Alexanders, Caesars, Ferdinands, Capets, Fredericks, Josephs, and Tsarinas have fought ferociously to enslave mankind. But it was reserved to you to wave the celestial banners of the rights of man over the tottering Bastilles of Europe, to break the shackles of despotism from the angles of millions, and destroy those yokes of oppression for the next of millions more as yet unborn. So partly Thompson is kind of echoing the thing I was just saying about how huge the opening created by the French Revolution seems to be. Partly he's kind of acknowledging that there is a kind of idol, you know, kind of idolatry of pain a little bit that's maybe kind of excessive. But I think the point he wants to conclude on, and again, this really grounds us in the kind of Cold War context that he's in, is that um, it's not the revolutionary forces at the beginning of the modern world in France or in England or elsewhere that produce totalitarianism, right? And this is a very, very kind of common line of analysis, um, right? That there's a kind of straight line from Robespierre and the Jacobins to Lenin, to Stalin. Maybe Hitler is in there somewhere too. Um, and in contrast to this, Thompson is really trying to emphasize that there is a kind of... Um, you know, I, I mean, I think he would actually use the word libertarian, probably. There's a kind of libertarian uh, dimension that's central to the revolutionary experience and that democracy is fundamentally grounded in it. Right. And I think it's worth reading what he ends with, which is following what you were reading. He says, so great has been the reaction in our time against Whig or Marxist interpretations of history that some scholars have propagated a ridiculous reversal of historical roles. The persecuted are seen as forerunners of oppression and the oppressors as victims of persecution. And so we have been forced to go over these elementary truths. Um, I think, you know, it's a classic Thompson at the end of the chapter to sort of actually finally make clear what he's arguing against. Um but, I mean, the final line of the chapter is really interesting as far as the resonance of the debates he's engaged in. By bringing the nation into the question, he was bound to set in motion forces which he could neither control nor foresee, he being pain. This is what democracy is about. So he's, again, defending this idea of the revolutionary or even the sort of liberating um, person of, of pain's type um, that because it's de democratic, they don't know what forces they're going to unleash. But that is, in fact, the sort of trust that one must have when engaging in democratic struggles. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard, I, I think Tom, this is sort of by Thompson's design that I leave this chapter feeling sort of ambivalent because it, partly it does feel like he has worked himself around to the position that Anderson accuses him of having in um, Origins of the Present Crisis, right? That uh, he kind of does seem to be saying that there is this kind of liberal dimension embedded in the English working class tradition and English working class movement, which, you know, it evolves in phases, right? It goes from being kind of the riot to the kind of constitutionalism to, you know, pain and Jacobinism, Obviously, we'll see it go beyond that. But Thompson is very clearly saying 
none of these is a total rupture, right? It's an evolutionary process. It always can, brings forward elements of the past. Um, and these elements of the past bring with them, you know, the respect for property, the pain echoes, for example, um, the, you know, the liberalism that Thompson is defensively pointing to here to say, see, we're not, we're not Stalinists. We're not totalitarians. We believe in an open society. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about, I was imagining Anderson reading this chapter as I was finishing it and thinking that he must have read it and thought, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So what's, so your ambivalence then is that he's gone too far into exactly what Anderson is, has accused him of. Well, uh, I don't, I don't know if it's, if it's Thompson's problem or the problem of working class formation in England. <laughs> um, yeah, right, right, sure. But it, it sort of seems like um, this this chapter actually kind of does make an argument for the possibilities of working class consciousness and politics in England being conditioned fundamentally by this kind of liberalism. That the traces can't, act, they're actually quite strong. Yeah. Yeah. How should we wrap this up, Gabe? Do you want to? Do you have any other random things you've been thinking no, I about? I think so. So I guess we should just set the stage for our our journey next next week. Uh, so next week we will be reading the very long chapter five, planting the liberty tree. Uh, so that chapter is the whole assignment. And as always, please join us on Slack, which you can do by going to Patreon.com/slash/CasualtiesOfHistory to discuss the readings this week, to disagree with the thing I just said about Perry Anderson, which I'm not sure I want to defend, so please come push me on it. Alex, what should we push you on on Slack? Um, absolutely everything. I think I okay. just want people to actually use the Slack. I think it's been great that people are starting to do it. Um, yeah, there's whole discussions on there of historiography and Marxist theory and stuff. People are starting to write entire essays on supplementary readings. Also, maybe I shouldn't say this on the episode, but... Uh, there's lots people are posting a lot of supplementary readings in there that are paywalled or otherwise inaccessible to a lot of people. So in that in itself might be worth you checking out the Slack just because all of those things are in PDFs on the Slack. Um, but yeah, I really encourage people to start arguing with each other. Also, me and Gabe definitely want to respond to conversations in there on the podcast itself. Um, and so the more the better. Um, and then just once again, um, Blueberry.com is also where the show can be listened to. B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com backslash Jacobin. Thank you, Gabe. Thank you, Alex. Talk to you, talk to you next week. Talk next Ho week. Hopefully we'll get through this very long chapter. All right. Have a good one. You too. Thanks for listening to Casualties of History, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. Thanks to our producer, Sarah Hurd, and to Joey La Neve de Francesco for the music. You can find us at Blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com backslash J-A-C-O-B-I-N or at Patreon.com backslash Casualties of History. If you want to join in the conversation about the reading, sign up on Patreon and you'll be added to our Slack.